I think that the first time I encountered the word or idea of Jubilee was at my grandparents' Golden Jubilee wedding anniversary. I was maybe eight or nine years old. Uh, And at this event, the grandkids all ran around the backyard of my grandparents' house and adults dropped in for coffee out of fancy coffee cups and there were fancy sandwiches with the crusts all cut off. And my grandma and grandpa used a really fancy knife to cut a giant sheet cake that said, happy anniversary on it in big scrolly letters. Therefore, to me, Jubilee means, meant, I guess, meant a fancy party for old people. <laughs> Later, I encountered the idea of Jubilee as debt relief, as perhaps many of you have. The church and social justice organizations were making a big push in the late 90s for global financial institutions and nations to forgive debts of developing countries. This was the Jubilee 2000 initiative. And it was then, or maybe earlier in Bible college courses, that I actually realized that Jubilee is a biblical idea. Even though both of these, the fancy celebration, the fancy party, and the Jubilee 2000 initiative is somewhat of a dilution of the biblical principle. Each of them holds a bit of what that is. The the great joy, the celebration, the 50 years, and also release and forgiveness and a sharing of enough for all. It was when talking about our congregation's 50th anniversary celebration coming up in a couple of years that the idea of Jubilee as a framework emerged and arose out of our spiritual leadership team gathering. In that 50 years of our life as a congregation, or it's 48 this year, in that time a generation has passed. We've moved, we've grown in number, we have amassed land and wealth, and become not a young and scrappy group in South Seattle, but an established and known force in Lake City. We are sought out as people of influence in this community. And SLT realized that God had set a table before us. Jubilee as celebration. Yes, a joyful recognition of all that Seattle Mennonite Church has been in this past half century. And also, it is an opportunity as we anticipate that celebration to enter a time of careful discernment of the questions that have long been before us. What will be our approach to our endowment? How will we use the property that we have on this block of land in Lake City? What ministries do we want to continue to pursue? And how will our pastoral team reflect that? How will we approach our personal and household giving? With these economic questions before us, we saw that the Spirit had placed in front of us a biblical economic principle. A principle that is both joyous and celebrative and disruptive, but transformative. 
Just as we, spiritual leadership team, chose Luke's gospel as a foundation for this season, the Jesus depicted by Luke uses the text of Isaiah. The scroll is placed in his hand. He uses it as the foundation for his ministry. We see in Luke that Jesus has already been preaching and speaking in synagogues all over Galilee, his home. And we're told by the gospel writer that he was filled with the Spirit and that everyone was pleased with him everywhere he went. He was doing some impressive preaching. I imagine there might have been videos posted of him on YouTube if we had seen him today. And his winning streak continues as he rose in his home congregation in Nazareth. Now, I get a little flutter of pride and welling up of joy when someone like Sam or Thalia or Claire or Lacey gets up in front of our congregation and speaks or reads words from Scripture. These are our beloved children. And not to embarrass you guys or single you out, but you just do such a nice job. You are composed and authoritative and you read so well. And the words coming out of your mouth are God's words. This is how Jesus was received. Awe. Love. And rightly so. The words that Jesus offers from Isaiah are words of joy and comfort and assurance and beauty. You might remember that Isaiah is actually three sections, three distinct uh, sections which address three different times in the life of God's people. The time before God's people are exiled, during the time of exile in Babylon, and when they return to the city of Jerusalem in ruins. These words, the words that we heard from Isaiah this morning, these are words addressed to a community that has returned from exile. But their experience is not what they expect. It doesn't line up with what they expect as homecoming. Their homecoming isn't a celebration. Instead, they they see destruction that will take generations to build back. There are political and religious factions, and the overarching feeling is one of humiliation and despair. And the prophet speaks into this context hope. It would be, I I imagine this would be like speaking into Syria, a country in rubble and ruin, which will take generations, should the war ever stop. God have mercy. Generations to rebuild. And the prophet speaks release and freedom from the captivity of that humiliation and despair, a vision of rebuilding. And just as Jesus echoes Isaiah, Isaiah echoes back back into scripture the vision of Jubilee in Leviticus. And it is, it's in Leviticus 24 and 25, no, 25 and 26, Les was nodding at me, <laughs> that, and Megan, Megan is going to preach that word next week. It's in that 
part of scripture that we see where that rhythm of jubilee comes from. And not just jubilee, but every seven days, a Sabbath. Every seven years, a Sabbath year. Every seven sevens, a Sabbath of Sabbaths. And then on that 50th year, all will be made level. I was, when, I was, when I was imagining the sermon, I kept remembering Megan's uh, Kansas sermon. The, uh, what, what was the, yeah, right, right, this thing. The leveling, the great leveling out. The returned exiles are assured. Our rhythm is off, but now, now is the time for restoration. In God's vision of a new world, Sabbath is every year. All is new. All is restored. And you people, you people of God, you will be known for rebuilding, for building up, for being the pillars of righteousness and justice. And what starts here and now will only grow into new and new and new and more new. Luke is strategic with those words and quotes that Jesus uses and with the examples that he chooses from Scripture because he doesn't just quote from Isaiah. He goes back to other prophets and borrows examples of stories that these people know well. Perhaps we too are lulled by the beautiful imagery and idyllic comforting beauty of the promise of Isaiah. We like to think that we will be oaks of righteousness. That when we mourn, we will receive a garland and anointing. And Jesus does a bit of a bait and switch here. He endears himself to his home community and has them all, oh, Joseph's son, which is a bit of a dramatic irony, really, because Joseph's son. Look at him all grown up and preaching in places. But wait, just hold up a second. Jesus is God's beloved son. In fact, at least according to Luke, not Joseph's biological son at all. And that same spirit that proclaims him beloved upon his baptism Jesus claims through the words of Isaiah to be upon him still, and that same spirit compels him to keep speaking. Jesus takes those beautiful, comforting words of Isaiah meant for a nation in ruins and changes it slightly for his very, already very, very comfortable audience. First, Jesus plucks up an additional phrase out of Isaiah and adds it to his quote. That's the line about letting the oppressed go free. So he adds even more freedom and release. And he leaves off the bit about vengeance. We saw how that was dramatized this morning with Isaiah being like, hey, Jesus, you missed something there. And then he goes on to add some examples. The justice and mercy that God's servants offered in the story of the prophets. And as Luke tells it, the justice and mercy that God's servants offer in the stories of the prophets are not for the people of Israel, but for foreigners. 
And Luke's whole gospel pushes the good news outside of the hometown, outside and into foreign territory. But here Jesus is specific. Naaman the Syrian, the widow of Zarephath. Indeed, he says there were many lepers in Israel, but none of them was cleansed. Well, that just makes his folks mad. If God's vision of abundant blessing is for those people, they don't even want to hear it. And not only is there no recompense for those God-fearers, the vengeance is left out, God's mercy and justice is for them too? Well, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for me? If Jubilee is real... And if Jesus is calling himself the prophet who is saying, this starts now, well, okay. But not if that means that we might have to give up a portion of our blessedness, of our comfort, of what is ours. I cannot quite understand the level of threat and revulsion that people felt at hearing Jesus say that God's gift and favor was not for them. I can't quite understand what got them from that comfortable feeling in the synagogue to out on the brow of the hill. But this is integral to their biblical understanding of who they are. And Jesus has been, but Jesus has been steeped in the idea that God's love is wide enough. God's blessing is wide enough. God's economy, God's house, which is where economy comes from. God's economy is wide enough even for all those who are fearful, for all those who lead him out to the hill. Some of you have heard by now uh, Megan or I wax on about our obsession with Hamilton, the musical. It's no spoiler to say that it ends in the death of Alexander Hamilton at the hand of Aaron Burr, whose friendship turned to rivalry and ultimately his detest because of Burr's jealousy and resentment of Hamilton's success. And after all is said and done, Burr sings. I'm not going to sing it. Now I'm the villain in your history. I was too young and blind to see I should have known the world was wide enough for both Hamilton and me. The world is wide enough. God is absolutely wide enough. Jubilee is wide enough for them and for us. This concept of enoughness is why SLT, Spiritual Leadership Team, so felt that the Spirit was upon us as we talked more and more about the rightness of Jubilee as our framing concept. How will our wealth, both that of the church and that of us personally, and I admit that's the part that makes me wiggle a little bit with discomfort, how will it be part of the enoughness? It is no small thing that we have already used much of the money with which we have been gifted to build a ministry to people experiencing homelessness, to partner in services, housing, welcoming space, 
staff accompaniment, and so much more. And now what? And where will our radical hospitality take us next? And I want to remind you, I don't just mean really awesome hospitality when I say radical hospitality. I mean hospitality that roots us and grounds us in God's justice. May we feel, we may feel like leading Jesus to the cliff when we hear his word proclaimed in our midst. When we are challenged in our personal giving, when we raise the idea, for example, of reparations, we're going to give our money to who? We had nothing to do with slavery. We had nothing to do with land stealing. We're Mennonites. This is ours. They don't deserve it. When we reconsider bulldozing this space, it may look radically different. It will absolutely look radically different. Or having no space at all. The ideas that the Spirit leads us to might make us uncomfortable and even angry. And the fact is we have been called to this two-year period of Jubilee season. We've called it a season. But Jubilee, in Jesus' vision, is not two years. It is all the years. Hashtag all the years. It is now, and it is then, and it is always. And when we talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, when we talk about the kingdom, we are talking about Jubilee. That is a theme that will take us to eternity, literally. May God's spirit be upon us, and may we proclaim that this is the year of the Lord's favor. Amen.